2: This week, in honor of the Juneteenth holiday, we're rerunning an extraordinary story by Maya James, who you can find at mayajjames.weebly.com. Now, Maya discovered the podcast when she was 11, and she emailed me when she was 17 to say that she felt risk had saved her life, that she found real grounding in listening to people's stories of resilience on the show. And I was so moved by that email that I said, well, pitch us a story. It's okay that you're younger (laughs) than the average risk storyteller. But here's something I only realized this week. This story was recorded just a few hours before Donald Trump announced he was running for president in June of 2015. When Maya and I got on Skype to record this story together, we had no idea what that day would end up meaning. You know, that a tidal wave of overt racism was about to explode into American society to a degree most of us hadn't seen so publicly in your face in decades. But the good news is that Maya, who is, I believe, 23 now, (laughs) is... Absolutely flourishing. Her painting, her poetry, her activism, she has come so far and she remains such an inspiration. So without further ado, here she is now. This is Maya James with a story we call Take Freedom.
0: The first time I really found out I was black was when I was three, and we had just moved to Michigan. My dad's always been really cautious, just like me. He told me that I'm black and people are going to treat me differently for it. You can tell a little kid that, hey, those other kids don't want to play with you because they think that you're too light-skinned or they think you're too black. And that would happen a lot. He told me the first time about his family in Texas when I was five because my parents never down talked me. They always talked to me like I was a person and they always gave me a very big vocabulary so I was talking a lot. We always had these conversations before bed. I told him that I thought it was awesome that I was black, or something cool like that. I was like, I like being black. And he was like, that's really good because a lot of people have suffered for it. And I've watched people die. I've seen dead bodies hanging from trees. I've seen people get drive-by shot. I've seen my brothers and... Me, and he had 10 siblings, all get chased by dogs coming home from school because some racist white kid just wanted to torture them. And they had to deal with it because that was Texas and that was normal. That was completely normal. The first time I was called a nigger, I was in kindergarten, and I was five years old, and I knew what it meant. My kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Ingle, was really sweet, and she hated that I had to learn what the N word was. So she made the kid write me a letter, and it goes kind of like this. Dear Maya, What I said in the hallway last week was wrong and hurtful. I have respect for everything you and your people faced, and I am very sorry. I don't know if you have ever had a six-year-old write to you, but that is not anything that they could even come up with. It's beautiful, it's eloquent, but it is not something that a six-year-old can write. It is something that a kindergarten teacher can write, though. And I started to notice this kindergarten teacher script. As I left kindergarten and as I kept getting older and going to different grades, the names always changed. And the thing that they said was always worse than the last. It drove me to do something. So I started educating myself. I started learning about black rights and Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Malcolm X and Charles B. Hamilton. I love that guy. I was so young and I was starting to get my own ideals about race and it was beautiful. But that didn't help how bad I felt. So it was when I was in fourth grade in science class on Martin Luther King Day. And we were set up with this projector on this big screen showing the I Have a Dream speech. And the whole thing just captivated me. His words got louder and louder and they got filled with more passion. And I noticed that No one in the entire class is paying any attention. And I am baffled. I don't know why no one would listen. I also noticed that there was a girl I know. Her name is Katie. And she was in the corner of the room in what I can only describe as a fuming pile of anger. Something about this had really, really pissed her off. She was scrunch faced, sad, and fiercely angry. She was pulled aside because she was being rude and like having a hissy fit in front of the whole class. She said, Mr. Middaw, my dad told me not to believe anything that you say because you're just trying to give us a liberal agenda and Maya's a nigger. By my first year of middle school, I was having sharp rocks thrown at me every day and I was being called the N-word all the time. Kids love to go up to you and ask you if they can tell you a racist joke. They think it's really, really funny. Like, oh, can I tell you a racist joke? And every single time now, I'm like, no. No, you're not my friend. You're not the person I want to be around right now. Like, you have just showed your ass to me. But back in the day, when I was in middle school, you had no choice. Otherwise, you were pinned as being too sensitive. So... I would say, yeah. And they said, what's the difference between a park bench and a black man? One can support a family. And I think of my dad. And it's so wrong. (laughs) They're so wrong. My dad has always been the bigger man. He's always been colorblind, and sometimes it makes people pin him as an Uncle Tom. But he never judges bigots. He never judges anybody. He knows they're wrong. We talk about it. He knows his views politically and socially. He just respects everybody, and he always respected me. My number one bully was named Cody Waite and he would tell me I was sweaty and gross-smelling, I was unlovable, and that I was just trash and dirt and no one would ever want me. And the teachers weren't helping at this point. They were just as racist as everybody else was. I. Remember having to clean a cafeteria table with janitorial supplies because I sat on it, and the lunch lady said, No one would want your butt on there, it's so nasty. And I knew it was because I was black. I was watching another white kid, like, sitting on the table right next to me. And then my two girl bullies tell me that I'm unlovable again and that no one will date me and no one will take me to my first middle school dance because I'm so gross. I remember one of them, Scarlett, she actually told my friends to stop hanging out with me. And I go into the bus on the way home and Cody doesn't stop telling me these horrible things. And my other bully, Logan, starts calling me the N-word. And at the point where I get home, He's, like, being violent towards me and telling me he'll kill me. I say, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? And he's like, you're nothing. You're nobody. If I killed you right now, no one would care. And I said, really? If you're going to threaten my life, I'm going to call the cops because this was not the first time my life was threatened. I say, I'm going to call the cops, and he says, do it. No one's going to believe you because you're black and I'm white and it always works out that way, doesn't it? After I walk home from the bus stop crying, I go into my mom's bathroom and I try to figure out how to take her razors out of her leg shavers so that I can kill myself. And this is the first time I've ever felt so lonely and so impulsive and so angry. And it's the first time I've ever thought that I shouldn't be alive, that no one should live like this. My mom walks in on me and she says, what are you doing? What are you doing, Maya? Why would you do this? Why would you do this? And she she takes me and she brings me into her room and she sits me down. And I just burst out in tears. And the only thing that I can say is the kids at school hate me, Mom. They hate me because I'm black. And it's been going on since I was five years old. And this is the last day that I can handle it. My mom looks down at me. I can tell she feels horrible. (laughs) And I feel horrible. And we both don't know what to say to each other. And so we just cry for a little bit. She tells me how my brothers were bullied racially in California for different reasons. How my brother had a gun pulled on him and how she was bullied on the way home from school and how horrible it is. But also how horrible it is that we have to grasp the fact that this is based on just my color. And then she tells me, she says, you can be a school of choice student you can decide what school you feel safe in before you're forced to go there. So I do, and I make friends. I make lots of friends. I even made a boyfriend or two. They were all different types of colors, and they had all different types of drama, and they've had all different types of struggles. I focused on educating myself because that was the most important part of the entire equation. So I got into Interlochen. I went to boarding school and I met Tony Kushner, Andrea Gibson, which inspired me eventually to get really deeply into spoken word. And then before I knew it, I was performing at my school and at the Portland Poetry Slam in 2013. I had a little itty bitty fan base and I was like so excited. And even though there's no solvent solution to racism, it's what you do with the worst that really matters.